end. You ready to start, Jim? All right. First of all, thank you for coming. And I have been praying about this evening for several days. And I do very much appreciate you being here. And here's what I appreciate. You came Sunday, you heard what I had to say, and then you came back. <laughs> That's what I thought. Because I said, come and see how you might get involved. And I invited you initially here to explore your making a contribution to, of your divinely given gifts to this community and to the people that we as yet don't know. However, tonight I'm going to let you know that there's a lot more involved than you may have initially thought, a lot more involved than that simple invitation would entail. Because what I've really invited you to do is come be part of a journey together to move toward a deepened dimension of spirituality. Because if we are going to discern what God wants us to do, if we're going to figure out what it is that the Lord would have us do, if we're going to participate with God and be partners with God and affect divine change in one another's lives and affect change in people as yet unknown, people we do not yet know, if we're going to do that, then it's going to require of us a new dimension of spirituality. So really what I'm inviting you to is a deepened experience of the Lord. Because the spirituality of the servant is an advanced state over the spirituality of the served. Once again, the, the spirituality of the servant is an advanced state over the spirituality of the served. So first and foremost, what I'm inviting you to is a new dimension of knowing God and following God. Lord, I'm not, I want not only to be in your house, but I also want to join in with you in what you're doing on the earth. That's really what the invitation is. Now, the email that I sent to you this morning, if you've had a chance to check your email yet, encapsulates what I'm saying. Let me just read that first paragraph. When it comes to accomplishing things for God, you will find that high aspirations, enthusiastic feelings, careful planning, and being able to express yourself well are not worth very much. The important thing is absolute surrender to God. You can do anything He wants you to do if you're walking in the light of full surrender. And full surrender is really a function of spirituality. It is a condition of our souls. So first and foremost, my invitation to you tonight is an invitation to absolute surrender to God. Complete abandon to the Lord. You've heard me say it several times. Whatever you ask, Lord, I will do. Wherever you send, Lord, I will go. Now, I know that that's a frightening proposition to those who feel like they've been exploited, particularly by the church, or exploited even some by God. But I want to ask you to suspend your fear for just a little while, because I think you'll see that it isn't necessarily going to be that. So first, it's an invitation to absolute surrender. Second, it's an invitation to the journey of discernment, discerning God's heart for ourselves. Lord, what is your agenda of redemption for me that I can be a servant of yours? Second, what is your di discerning, what is your agenda for our community, for NRCC, for the area of oversight that I will take, the area of ministry? What is your purpose here? What is your agenda here? Discerning that from God. 
and then discerning the heart of God for the area outside of our own current community. Lord, who is it that you have assigned us to? And how will we find them? And where are they, God? How shall we invite them? Second, it's an invitation to discernment. And third, it's an invitation to obey with me. I invited you here to help me build NRCC into the healthiest, most spiritual, most God-experiencing community that we can be. I invited you to come help me serve our people and serve those people that we don't yet know and offer health and life to our community and to those that God would make part of us. So that's what the invitation meant when I said, how can I be involved? <laughs> now, I'm going to make an assumption here. I'm going to make an assumption that you're going to get involved. Now, I know that for some, you're just still checking it out, and I, and I know that that may not be an accurate assumption, but you need to know that's the assumption that I'm going to make, so I'm going to act accordingly. So, because I'm going to assume that you're going to hear from God, you're going to find your way into some uh, dimension of contribution to our tribe, with that assumption, I'm not going to spend our time together tonight talking about the practicalities of how you're getting involved. Instead, I've written an extensive document that's 14 pages long, and you're going to work your way through it, and you're going to know all the things that are happening happening at our church, and at the end, you're going to be praying, and you're going to be asking God. You're going to take it home. It's going to be homework. Then you and I are going to talk, and you're going to say, you know, Doug, this thing kind of uh, appealed to me, and this thing kind of, I felt a nudge from God in my heart about this. And then afterwards, you and I are going to talk together, and we're going to help you find a way into contribution. So that's the assumption that I'm going to make. Because of that, instead, tonight what I'm going to do is spend our time talking together in a way that paints a picture of what this invitation that I'm extending to you means and give you the full implications of what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And I'll begin by weaving together a story and a diagram, and I'm going to make some, uh, at least one outrageously presumptuous claim, and that's what we're going to do tonight. So, second slide, if you would. You've seen this before. Some weeks ago, I drew it. You can't see the words. The print's far too small. But let me tell you what it says. This is a diagram of a way of thinking about the way that cultures develop over time. It's a developmental model of human societies called spiral dynamics. And each one of the curves on this, what would be a spiral if it could be in three dimensions instead of two dimensions here, this would be several stages of the journeys that cultures, cultures travel as they advance and as they grow. You start up at the very top and you see that there is a beige area. Each one of those colors represents one of these stages. And by the way, we should attribute this. It, uh, is from a book, Spiral Dynamics, by a guy named Don Beck, and he got a lot of his thinking from a guy, Claire Graves, is that right? Claire Graves, and so this is where this comes from. The beige is uh, very much an individualistic way of thinking about culture. It isn't culture at all in a real proper sense. It is the instinct for individual survival. It is the individual driven by hunger. It is the individual driven by thirst and the desire to survive wild animals. It's an almost animalistic base level of being in existence. So very quickly, human beings have developed past that and moved into the purple uh, meme is what it's called. And this is more of a tribal way of living. They see the world as spirits and as signs. 
the individual becomes subsumed as part of the group, and the group together tries to placate these mysterious forces of the world by sacrificing virgins in a volcano or by cutting themselves or some of the things that we see in the Scripture with the, the tribe that would worship Baal and trying to placate the mysterious forces of nature and trying to eke out survival but at the mercy of the spirits. In this kind of culture, the shaman or the witch doctor mediates reality to the tribe and has a great deal of influence in that kind of living, that level of development. The next one you see is red, and this is the warlord way of living. This is where a few individuals emerge from the tribe, and they themselves begin to get power, and they begin to exercise whatever it takes in order to maintain power. Those that are beneath them exist for the sole purpose of serving the power of the one at top, because the one at top begins to act as the protector of the tribe, begins to act as the one who keeps things together, but all power is vested in this individual at the top of the heap. And therefore, the chief becomes more important in this way of living than the witch doctor or than the shaman. This one becomes the one who has control, who has power to reward or to punish. And then the next one, the blue meme, is where I really want to start talking. This is the organized religion way of living. <clears throat> this is when the group recognizes that human power just isn't powerful enough, that the power of the spiritual trumps the power of the human being. Because they begin to recognize that death and mortality have voices and speak to us of a realm beyond the tangible, touchable world in which we eke out survival. And so the group begins to think about eternity and finds a way of seeing what eternity might be like, seeing what eternity might uh, act like. And having seen these glimpses of eternity or transcendence, they recognize that the other side, the transcendent realm, makes demands upon us. There is a way that we live informed by eternity. There is a way that we live informed by the transcendent, and we discern that way. And it becomes the true way of living. It becomes the only way to live. And those who are in the group surrender their wills to this way of being. Now, typically, this is where church has entered into the process. And a hierarchical church then comes in, and it is typically the church hierarchy that tells the people in the group what the voice of eternity says, what the voice of God says, what the way to live is. And so the hierarchy mediates reality to the group, and authority resides in those who speak for the transcendent. That would be the priest or the bishop or the, the, the person at the top of the religious uh, hierarchy. Humans begin to find that there is one way, that there is a true way, that there is a one and only way, and then they begin to dedicate themselves to obedience to this one and only true way, this one and only true cause. Absolute obedience is the way that is demanded for people in this blue experience of reality. The, they are motivated by guilt, for if they deviate from the one and true way, they have often earned the ire or the anger of their deity of God. Their significance is not so much vested in the present. Their significance is vested in eternity. Their significance is vested in life after this life. 
now is not so important. What matters is what happens after I die. Now is minimized because there comes a time of eternal that is then. Now, the church during the Middle Ages was very much like this, and many conservative, fundamentalist, or even hierarchical churches see the world this way even today, and they see their faith consequently this way. And that's the lens through which they look at Jesus. It is the lens through which they look at God. It is the lens through which they look at Scripture. That would be a blue meme way of being. Then there is an orange way. And what is characterized as the orange is an efficient and an effective way of living. Because people who live in the blue meme for any length of time begin to look up one day and say, you know, sweet by and by, pie in the sky someday in eternity just isn't going to cut it for me. I need something more for now, something for this life, something for today. So the group begins to want something more than just living a life of drudgery and toil and obligation and duty and obedience and want something for now, something for this time. So now becomes even more important than it was in the blue period. And eternity and God and transcendence, these things need to produce something for me today. And I begin to see God through the reality of, I want God to produce something for me right here and right now on this earth. It's just not enough for me to wait for that day when I die and then go off to bliss and glory and paradise. I want God to begin to work in my life and work in my life the way it is right now. God and religion and truth, it's discovered along the way, have a whole bunch of variations. There's a whole lot of ways to interpret God. And so I'm on the quest to find the best possible interpretation of truth, the best possible interpretation of God, the best possible way. And on that quest, I discover often that it is this denomination. This is the one that has the truth that really works. This tradition, this is the one that really works. This way works. Not so much. This denomination works. This way of belief works. This one doesn't so much. This truth produces the best results. That one, not so much. This way of praying is the best way to get things done. This biblical principle is the best principle by which to live. And so that will work for the here and now. It will produce good results. Life's objectives begin to find out and follow the best, most efficient, most uh, effective practices to make life work for me today. So there's a great deal of goal setting in this. There's a great deal of attainment and achievement. Hard numbers are used to indicate whether we're being successful or not being successful. In the church, it would be translated... Into this, the number of people who are saved, the number of people who get baptized, the number of people who are uh, churches that get started, the number of people who are in the building, the number of prayers that get answered, the number of divorces that get uh, uh, solved so that people stay married, the number of problems that get solved, the number of goals that get achieved. And that's how we begin to measure how effective is our truth, how effective is our religion. And then you can see we move on to the green meme, and the green meme is more of a communal way of living. The goals become much less important, and what becomes more important is interior peace and happiness. These things become more important than accumulating. They become more important than attaining. They become more important than achieving. And all of a sudden, it becomes very important to forge harmony between human beings. Uh, green meme people, 
value very highly addressing inequity. When they find that there is a lack of equity between the haves and the have-nots, it becomes a strong value to make sure that the have-nots are elevated and are cared for. In religion, it expresses itself in a need for community, a strong need for relational closeness, need for a rich interior life, dissatisfaction with the religion of achieving and going and doing and faster and harder and working, and the realization that comes along the way that achievement does not satisfy and so it's not okay just to get people to heaven in the future, but hurt them while they're here. So green people begin to value taking care of the well-being of humans in the here and now. Terms like egalitarian kick in and become important. Humanitarian, these things are important. Tolerance, acceptance, these are the kinds of words that green meme people start using along the way when their society, their group, their culture begins to embrace this next stage of development. Now that's as far as I'm going to go. I'm not going to talk about the, the yellow on because those seem to be uh, a little more advanced than we need to address for right now. But it's important to note that each one of these developmental stages views God and views religion through the stage at which they see reality. Each one of these stages is a little bit like passing through puberty. You know, we are prepubescent, and then something happens, and now we are postpubescent. And we see the world differently, we feel differently, we act differently. It's a reality that happens that people experience as they're going through this life journey. Now, it's interesting to note that each one of these developmental stages looks backward and sees the previous developmental stages with scorn. In other words, an orange person will look back and see a blue religious person, and they will think of them as less developed, they will think of them as less civilized, they will think of them as less enculturated, less religious, less truth, a little backwards, a little bit of a throwback. It's interesting also to note that everyone will look at people who were in the stages ahead of them, and they will look at those people as evil. Look at those people as compromising. Look at those people as having something that has gone wrong with them, and so they are the enemy. Now, this is just human reality. It doesn't have much to do with religion. We're just in a religious context. It doesn't have much to do with spirituality. It's just the way human beings develop, but we interpret this through the lens of what it means to be the Church of Jesus Christ and what it means to be North Raleigh Community Church. This is happening to us. It is happening in the world around us. Aware or unaware, it doesn't matter. It is happening. What I want to suggest to us as a community is the fact that it's happening is affecting us. And it's changing the reality of how we live as the community of faith here at NRCC. So put the next slide up. Because what I want to do is focus on the blue and the orange. And I wanted to see if I could get it large enough for you to see. With that as enough background, what I want to point out to you is this. Most Christians today in North America are either in the blue meme or the orange meme. That's what's happening if we take a snapshot of 2006, the Church of Jesus Christ in North America. When they think about church, when they think about God, when they think about their faith, they see it, they see church, or they see God through the lens of this stage of development, this way in which they view reality. If they're orange, they're going to see God as how can I find his best principles so that I can live with successful living. If they're orange, they're going to see how can I walk in complete obedience or blue. Now, many believers see God as out there or up there in some great realm compared to which our lives are very insignificant. 
He makes demands upon us. We live this way, we act this way, we are this way, and if we're not, bam, the hammer's going to come down, God is going to be upset with us, and if we do and we get away with it, it doesn't matter because now we're plagued with this tremendous guilt because we haven't lived the way that God has asked us to, asked us to live. And so, if we disappoint God or if we anger God, then we are in this place of recognizing that we have failed and we're plagued by guilt. For this group of people, the church then becomes the authority that mediates God to their lives. The pastor who is well-respected or the evangelist who exercises profound spiritual gifting or the leader who comes into town and says that this is the way truth is, that carries a great deal of weight. And what that leader says goes. What the denominational rules say, this is what goes. The best that we can do is we can live for God, we can stay on the straight and narrow, we can look forward to heaven in the future. And life may not be all that good, but remember, in a blink of an eye, we will be taken up and we will be with our Lord. That would be a blue way of seeing God. Now, you can find a whole bunch of Bible verses to support a blue perspective of reality. You can find a whole bunch of faith uh, principles out there that will gravitate to and be accumulated to the blue developmental stage of reality. But then the orange way would expand on the blue and would want something more. God has come to give us life and give us life abundantly, John 10 says. So an orange bean person would gravitate to John 10 and would say, now that scripture seems to speak to my reality, my internal uh, way of thinking. Our God loves us, and as such, he has set himself to bless us. And we are blessed by our God, and we are blessed, many scriptures will say, in and out, up and down, God would wish to bless us. And we find these scriptures and we gravitate to, to them, and now it becomes to us to discover exactly how it is that we can live in such a way that we can release this love of God to our lives, release this love of God to bless us, and there are lots of ways to do that, we discover. There's lots of ways of being Christian. There's lots of ways to pray, for example. But when we discover the right way, then it releases the power of God in our lives, it releases the blessing of God in our lives because we have discovered the right way to pray, and it works. There is a lot of biblical principles for living out there, but if we live according to the right biblical principles, then it's going to release to us the power of God in our lives. Which the, uh, denomination is right? Which theology is right? Which teacher is right? And we're on a quest, and when we discover it, we work it. When we discover the great teachings, we begin to do what those teachings say, and we begin to live in such a way that we can now experience the blessing of God. We pray the right, right way, we speak the right way, we live the right way, and rightness before God produces good results in our lives. When we discover this, set out to do it, we set the God kind of goals, and we live this way. Now, if you're in an orange meme reality, you tend to see a blue Christian as backwards. You begin to see a blue Christian as a throwback. You begin to see a blue Christian as underdeveloped. And if you're an orange Christian, you begin to see a green Christian as a liberal. You begin to see a green Christian as someone who compromises the faith, as someone who is in error, as someone who has missed out on the Spirit of God and has missed out on the blessings of the Lord. And sometimes you see a green Christian as a flat-out heretic. 
We tailor our emphases in the gospel according to our stage of development. And when we are in each one of these stages of development, we ignore certain truths and we embrace others. We highlight certain truths, we dismiss others. In the blue meme, we clearly see the importance of complete and total, blind even, obedience to the ways of God, to the laws of the Lord, to the laws of spiritual reality. In the orange meme, we hear clearly the call of Jesus to the Great Commission. We hear clearly that there are principles by which we should live, and then we live those ways. We work them, we do them, because they are right. Now, each of these emphases that are found in the gospel are good. We find truth in there, and we work that truth. The only problem is, from our current stage of development, our current experience of faith is true, true, true. It's just not all the truth that there is. It's not the whole truth. When we are in the blue meme, what we understand of God is true because our God meets us when we are blue in our development, just as I loved my children when they were prepubescent. But God is also there to speak to us at a different way when we get to another stage of development. When my children were post-pubescent, I begin to talk to them differently and begin to relate to them differently and begin to show them greater realities. It is true, every one of these stages of development, it is just not the whole truth. As we grow, we see more than we had seen before. Here's the problem that we face today. The society that we live in, in North America in 2006, is solidly leaving the orange meme and entering the green meme. It started in the 60s with down with the establishment or opposition to the man in the gray flannel suit we hear a lot today about tolerance and about egalitarianism, about politically correct inclusion of all views, the valuing of all human beings. We are solidly becoming a green culture. However, the church is staying in the blue and in the orange. <clears throat> the church may be just about to leave the blue meme, and it has just about solidly entered into the orange meme because we still talk about goals and we still talk about objectives and we still talk about life principles that work. And there are a few green churches out there, but not many. Consequently, the church is becoming increasingly irrelevant to the culture that's around us. We're answering questions from Scripture, but nobody's asking those questions anymore. We're bringing to bear dimensions of faith that really are true. They just don't apply to anyone's felt needs anymore. The church has become, in many ways, out of step with the culture that is around us. So as a whole, we don't think about what the church means to green people. We don't think about what Jesus means to green people. Instead, what we've been trying to do for a long time is to try and get, uh, get people to stop thinking green thoughts and stop being green in their orientation. Instead of trying to show green people how Jesus is relevant in a green world, we've seen them as the enemy. But green thinking is not the enemy of Jesus. Green thinking is the enemy of orange thinking. And many times we have equated orange thinking with Jesus. We've equated blue thinking with Jesus. And it's just like the difference that I described between puberty. It's just different. 
And Jesus applies if a person is in a blue stage of development. And Jesus applies if a person is in an orange stage of development. And Jesus applies if a person is in a green stage of development. And our world is changing. And almost every Christian leader that I know today is orange. A few are green. But for the most part, green thinking generates blank stares or hostility when Christian leaders talk among themselves. Orange and blue people are afraid that green is compromising the gospel. But in fact, what is being compromised is a mental construct through which we see reality. We're not compromising the gospel. We're compromising our interpretation of the way we see the world. Jesus connects to green people just as he does for blue people and for orange people. And now for the outrageous claim. Next slide, Jim. Reading from Genesis, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that come up afterwards are seven years and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. God has shown Pharaoh what he's to, about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. Skipping a few verses. So Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt, and he stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea, so much that he stopped keeping record because it was beyond measure. When I was 14 years old, I was lying in bed reading the story of Joseph. Many of you have heard me say that. And the Holy Spirit of God made that story very real to me as a young boy. And in the 30-plus years since then, lying in that bed, about every five years, some dimension of this story comes alive to me as though God were speaking to me and saying, from this story you learn this thing. I see in that story my life. I see in that story my own story. I see in that story my direction many times. And in the weeks leading up to our congregation meeting while I was at prayer, I had another one of those every five year or so revelations. You've heard me say that haves are by nature conservative and have-nots are by nature progressive. Haves like to conserve what they have and have-nots like to change things so that they can have. It's always been that way. It's just the nature of being human. And for the longest time, the church has been among the haves. We have tasted of God, and we have had a very real experience of God. The last time that we had a major upheaval of God's moving in people's lives was in the 60s and the 70s during the charismatic renewal. But before that, there was the second great awakening in 1857, and before that, the first great awakening in 1800, and lots and lots of smaller instances in between where the church had a profound and authentic and real experience of God. God intersected their lives in a very real way. Christians begin to sense a high tide of the presence of the Lord, and therefore by nature they had something, and therefore by nature they were conservative. They had an experience to conserve. 
However, history also tells us that the haves don't have forever. Things change. And those who do not adapt to change will die. The outrageous claim that I want to make to you is that I believe God is leading us as a community the way of Joseph. A great famine is before the church, a famine like that of Egypt that encompassed all of their current reality. Because of the forces that I just described, because we see faith through a lens that our society no longer sees through, because we are answering questions that nobody is asking, because we emphasize truths that aren't all that relevant, a famine is before us. Demographers are already telling us that we are losing our children. For the last 25 years, we've not been retaining our children in the Church of Jesus Christ. They leave immediately upon adulthood or they never come. Barna says that my kids' generation, Haven and Daniels, Michaels, uh, their group, 4% of them will be considered Christian, down from 64% in my grandparents' age. I believe the famine is already upon us. But I also believe that God has given us a vision of truth here at NRCC. I believe that while we have been sitting up here on this hill, as I described Sunday, like guerrilla warriors that had been defeated in a great culture war. While we have been sitting up here seeking to rediscover our God, and while we have been seeking to rediscover His truth and His way of being, I believe that God has given us a vision of truth. We discovered a way of being Christian that is pertinent to green people. We discovered a way of being Christian that applies to green people because He's been talking to us about community. I wouldn't have chosen that, but that is what the message God has been given us. And lo and behold, community is of utmost importance, importance to green meme people. He's been talking to us about tolerance of one another in our weaknesses and our failures. You can't do that in an orange meme because it's not very efficient to be tolerant of people. You can't do that in a blue meme because we will have violated the great truth of God and blind obedience. And yet God has been talking to us about tolerance from Scripture, from the Spirit of God within us, about tolerating one another and tolerating divergent views within the world. God has been talking to us these 10 years about space being afforded to people who can think individually and think differently. Trusting the Holy Spirit to work in, in people instead of us jumping on them to get them straightened out and get them back into the Orthodox uh, camp. Instead of trying to get people straightened out, we've been giving people space to be exactly where they are and let the Holy Spirit do what He needs to do. Green ideas all. He has given us a different approach to spirituality. He talked a great deal to us about interior health, about the balance between being and doing with an emphasis on being, about not burning out, about finding strength in the very presence of God. Again, very green values. He's talked to us about not building a big church, but building big people. Again, not a big institution. Green, very green. And now you came here tonight to join me in beginning a journey to ask the Holy Spirit how to share what He's given us, how to serve the Church of Jesus Christ, and how to serve the city of Raleigh, and how to help prepare the church for the famine that is before us, and how to give our God to green people. Now here's the outrageous assertion. It is quite possible that I have asked you here to save the Church of Jesus Christ. In 1790, Voltaire wrote and he said, 
that Christianity will pass out of the affairs of man in 30 years. And it looked very much like what he said would be true because they were also in the midst of a cultural shift in a cultural transition. But by 1800, God had done something profound in awakening our nation to, that has affected our history such that we call it in capital letters, the first great awakening. It is quite possible that God has asked us here to be a lifeboat for a church that is sinking in its orange and its blueness when the world around it is turning green. It is quite possible that this is what God has asked. In 1997, I was at prayer one morning and the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said to me, do not build a church, build a prototype for a church. I don't know what to do with that because, you know, we've been sitting on the hill doing nothing. <laughs> what do you do with that? Build a prototype of a church. And so I didn't know what to do with that and I haven't done anything about it. But as I was praying in these weeks recently, the Lord brought that back to my mind. I remember where I was sitting, sitting when I was praying. I remember exactly what the Lord put in my heart. And perhaps that's what we've been doing these 10 years while we've been sitting up on here. We've been developing the kind of understanding and the kind of culture and the kind of interactive relationships that can interact in a world that is becoming green. I know that I am prone to illusions of grandeur, but that notwithstanding, it is no less than this grand vision that I've come to believe is God's mandate for us. And it's this to which I'm inviting the people of our community. I'm asking you to join me as a part of a community that God has positioned to save his church, which means that what we're doing is important, which means that what is before us is very important, historically important, perhaps. Now, history abounds with stories of small little outposts like NRCC, hidden away on the backside of no place as a little pocket of resource I told you about one of them when I told you about Ireland and about Patrick a few weeks ago, where the, the Irish monasteries became a place of maintaining a vibrant spirituality to then be re-extended to Europe. Well, it is quite possible that that's what God is doing among us, that God has chosen to work with some small point of significance for us that would bring salvation to others. Now, it's possible that that would happen in our lifetimes. It's possible that what we do here would affect the culture so profoundly that we would see it in our lifetimes. But it's also quite possible that all we will do in our lifetimes is lay a foundation for influence that will come to fruition in our children's time or in our grandchildren's time. But that really isn't ours to say. Ours is not to be responsible for the results. Ours is to listen and to obey and to faithfully do what the Holy Spirit of God has whispered to our hearts. Ours is to keep our eyes on the Lord and to keep our hearts tuned to His and to respond when He pulls our hearts forward and to hear having listened and to obey having heard. To hear having listened and to obey having heard to forge a tribe of green Christians, knowing that God is in a real way speaking to us and then obeying what it is that he tells us, a prototype that someday the Lord may come to us and decide to mass produce. He may not, but he may. A lifeboat for a church that is already floundering 
and all indications are will only continue to flounder, makes what we would do at NRCC important, very important. And participation in anything that is this important makes great demands upon us. So I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. My invitation is not to do a job in the church. In a moment, I'm going to hand you uh, a document that you can work through and find out what kind of job you'd like to do in the church. But it really isn't about that. My invitation is not for you to come and work in a ministry at NRCC. There are jobs to do. There are tasks that are before us. But I'm inviting you to a journey of deepened spirituality. The spirituality of one who partners with God. One who does what God has set himself to do on this earth. Who serves at the pleasure of the almighty God, the maker of heaven and of earth. Now, a green meme church accepts people wherever they are. People need not be able, they need not be ready, they need not even be desirous of taking on the mandate that I'm talking to you about tonight. And yet they will be accepted, yet they will be invited in, yet they will be included in our community. But for some, I said Sunday, I believe it is time to take up the mission of serving. Take up the mantle of partnership with God. Take up the responsibility of serving with the kingdom and serving our king. And for these, there are requirements. For those who take up this mantle, there are requirements. You're not serving perhaps in the children's ministry or the youth ministry or the worship ministry. You're not serving as a group leader. You're not serving as perhaps a spiritual friend. You're not serving in one of those capacities. What you are doing is you are partnering, partnering with the Lord to transform the earth. You are helping us to communicate, yes, helping to administrate, maybe helping us finish our building, but that's really not what we're doing together. What we're doing is we're partnering with God to transform the earth. And God makes requirements upon his partners. Now, many of you have heard me tell the story about the day that I was in China and God called me to serve him with my life. And that day, my life was given in service to partnering with God to transform the earth. I was given in service that day to God and to his people. And I thought about a lot of different careers when days have gotten bad, but I can never get past the fact that God has called me to serve him and his people. So I went to school, and I went to school to study those people that are called by God to serve in his kingdom. And what I discovered there changed the whole direction of my life. What I discovered is that my experience in China was not unique as I had supposed. Each one of us has a divine calling. Each one of us is called upon by God to serve the kingdom of God and see the earth transformed. Each one of us is called by God. And each is called to serve the Lord, meaning you are called to serve the Lord. Now for some, the emphasis of your calling will be the family. For some, the emphasis of your calling will be your career. That might be the venue where God most frequently uses you. For some, it will be any one of many places on the earth. But make no mistake, God calls each one of us to serve us in his kingdom. And when he does, I don't see how we can do anything but respond. Now, the journey that I talked to you about, the journey of discernment, is a journey that, of asking God, what does this calling look like? 
I said on Sunday, for some, this calling right now means to sit and be served by the community. For some, this calling means to just barely begin a recovery process because we've been burned out. For some, this calling means reassessing our values so we realize how much of our busyness has been serving me and my and mine. I said that Sunday. And for some, the discerning of this calling is going to say, I want you to serve these people in this community, in this church. Now, the journey of discernment is asking God, what does our calling look like? Now, some bad news. Now, right now, as of today, we are in an impossible, intractable situation. We cannot do this thing that is before us. We've already been trying, and it's not working. We don't have enough people that have enough spiritual maturity to do what is set before us. We don't have enough people with sufficient passion to do what is set before us. We don't have enough people with enough time, with enough bandwidth to do what is set before us. I caught Aaliyah in her office today crying because she had a point of vision set out before our teenagers and she was unable to do that because the people that were there to help her were being scattered and were unable to come and do that. We don't have enough people with enough passion for kids. We don't have enough people with enough passion for ministry. We don't have enough people that have enough ownership. We can't do this thing that is before us. We don't have enough people who have discerned and sensed the call of God in their life. So, right now, right here from the get-go, me standing here asking you to come be involved, I want to tell you that we don't have enough to do what needs to be done. We do not have sufficient resources. There aren't enough of us. Our lives are not of sufficient caliber and quality to be able to do the thing that God has set before us. What we have is only five loaves and two fishes. And there are 5,000 people out there. What we have is a handful of stones and a sling. And there is a giant out there who is standing against and dominating proportions, the forces of God. And what we have is 12 fearful disciples and a whole world that is in direct opposition to us. So I want you to hear clearly, we don't have enough. We're desperate. This isn't going to work. Ours has to be a journey of discernment. If we do not hear from the Lord, we will fail. The people who have gone before us are smart people. We're not smarter than them. The people who have failed in advancing the purposes of God are hardworking people. We can't hope to compete with their hard work or with their intelligence. And yet, so many have failed so I'm telling you, we can't afford to work hard. It'll destroy us. We'll end up crying in our office because we've got inadequate resource. We'll end up burning the candle at both ends, and then we'll become the very thing that we swore we wouldn't become. We'll become burned out. We can't afford to get organized and just go through that list of jobs and begin assigning those jobs and then taking them on and then doing them because we will just end up where we started, looking at the church and saying, that's irrelevant. That doesn't work. We can't afford to organize ourselves. We'll do it wrong. What we need is to hear from God. Listen to Isaiah 30. O people of Zion, weep no more. How gracious God will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. With your own eyes, you will see. Whether you turn to the right or whether you turn to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way.
walk in it. If you would come and join me, our first and foremost task together is to experience what the prophet promised. With our own eyes, we must see God lead us. With our own ears, we must hear the Lord from behind us saying, go to the left, go to the right. There, that's the way. Walk in that way. Because only then will we be able to discern where our God would take us. Only then will we be able to discern what is the heart and the will of God. So my first invitation isn't to go through this list of tasks. My first invitation is for you to come to a series of prayer meetings with me. Later this month, or early next month, I'm going to invite you to come here to this room. And I'm going to ask you to grab a chair and kneel down on the floor with me. And we're going to practice quiet and stillness. And we're going to spend time waiting upon the Lord. And we're going to spend some time praying. And we're going to pray for our children. We're going to pray for our adults. And we're going to pray for our city. And then we're going to spend some time fasting together. And we're going to spend some time asking God for direction together. Asking the Lord for clarity. Asking Him to guide us with His voice from behind, saying, go to the left and go to the right. And then we will quiet ourselves and we will listen. And for days we will listen and for weeks we will listen. And we will listen until God stirs something in our hearts. He's done it before here at NRCC. He's already given us points of direction that we walked in. We need to hear from the Lord for today. And then what we'll do is we will email one another those things that we are hearing the Lord stirring in our heart. We'll come together and say, during the week when I was praying, the Lord stirred this in my heart. And I will take these things and I will bring them to the congregation and we will talk about them together. In our small groups, we will talk about them. We will make place to become listeners and then we will make a fanatical commitment to stillness and seeking God. So we'll meditate. We'll take time for solitude. We'll go to the scripture. We'll go to spiritual readings. We'll listen to music. We will seek the voice of God. And I can tell you with certitude, we will hear his voice. If with all your heart you seek me, you will surely find me. This is the promise of God from Exodus. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Seek, and you will find. Ask, and you will receive. When God's people go to God, they hear from God. And the first place I want to lead you is to our knees. And the first place that I want to lead you is to ask the Lord what his strategy would be for us to walk in obedience to these things that he has prompted us to do. I'm going to lead you and all who will come with us to seek God and to hear God. And then having heard him, to obey, to move forward. We will do what God nudges us to do. Collectively, we will do it. We'll do it on behalf of our children, on behalf of our adults. We'll do it individually. We'll do it together. We will hear the Holy Spirit because we listen, and then we will obey. And then I'm going to lead you to be people of radical, fanatical obedience. If we learn this simple thing, this simple way of being, all God has for us will unfold. If we will listen and if we will obey, everything that he wants to do in our community, everything that he wants to do in our church, everything that he wants to do in our city will take care of itself. It'll happen without flesh getting in and mucking up the works. It'll happen without us burning out we will listen and we will obey. I was in a hurry one morning 
a month ago or so. And there was a guy working around our house doing some work that Denise had called him to come and do. And as I was hurrying to get ready to go off and meet someone, I was walking up the stairs after having greeted him and said hello, and the Holy Spirit nudged me to go stand and talk with him while he worked. And I really didn't have time to do that. And so as I'm walking up the stairs, the Lord prompted my heart, and it just came down to my mind, okay, if that is of God, am I going to obey or am I not going to obey? Am I going to do what needs to be done today, or am I going to go stand there and talk to this guy that I've already talked with and everything I had to say has been said? So I knew that it was just an issue of simple obedience. So I turned around, I walked down the stairs, and I went there and I stood next to him. I was nice to him. He was nice to me. Probably talked for 15 minutes. 15 minutes I really didn't have. He told me about his daughter. I told him about my kids. He asked what I did for a living. I told him. And then he really told me about his daughter. And then I said I would pray for her, and I did. There's no grand results, no great story, no wonderful thing. I just sensed that the Holy Spirit had nudged me to do a thing, and I went and did it. And I'm asking you to join me and do the same. Listen and obey. No grand results, but then we're not responsible for the results. We're responsible for how fanatically we listen and how we obey. This is the kind of thing required by those. We listen to the Holy Spirit and we respond. Your life becomes forfeit when you decide that you're going to be a minister of Jesus Christ. Life ceases to be about what is good for you. Life ceases to be about what is comfortable for you. You give your life in service, not to NRCC, not to the worship team or not to the children's team or not to the adult ministry team or service team. You give your life to the Lord, and you move in response and in obedience to the things God has called you to. And if the Holy Spirit calls you to serve in one of those tasks that I've got over there, then you abandon yourself to that call. You walk in complete obedience. You give obedience the import that is due your God. And I'm asking you to ask God to speak to you. I'm asking you to ask the Lord what it is He would have you do. And then I'm asking you to obey with fervor, with everything inside of you. I've been asking the Lord, as I've been praying toward this meeting, for a group of quiet zealots to join me. Quiet zealots. I don't want to be alone in this mission for our community anymore. I don't want Aaliyah to be alone anymore. I'm praying for people whose priorities have shifted to the kingdom of God, whose passions have been awakened to serve the Lord. I'm praying for a team of people who've considered the cost of obedience, and it is severe. I'm asking for people who have considered the cost of service to the kingdom of God, and with eyes wide open to the demands that the Holy Spirit often makes, sign on. Obedience is no small thing. It's a radical thing. Walking down the stairs to a window repairman, that's a small thing. But walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that's no small thing. Having God rewire your fundamental orientation to life and walking in obedience to that new life, this is not a small thing. Having Him change the foundation of your marriage, having Him change the way that you respond to your spouse or to your co-workers, becoming a grain of wheat that falls into the ground and has to die, and only then after death finds that there is life emerging from death. This is no small thing. Obedience to the Lord, radical obedience, is no small thing. For example, you heard what I said Sunday about tithing. And some are afraid to tithe. And some think they have good reason 
But this is where God teaches obedience, something very tangible and touchable. This is where he shows us the flip side of obedience. In this practical, tangible way, he teaches us the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom isn't learned in the ethereal. The way of the kingdom is learned right with the brass tacks of look at my checkbook, look at my money. In Scripture, I can't see a way around this call to obedience. It is a fundamental. It is a starting place. And now that I'm standing before you, I'm no longer asking for money. I'm asking for your heart. I'm asking for your heart to try God in this thing, in this tithe. It's the beginning point of a life of calling. It is one of the very first lessons of faith. It is one of the very first lessons of the kingdom. And those who will not embrace this first lesson because of fear find that right out of the gate they have made it much harder to learn every succeeding lesson because every succeeding lesson is founded on the first lesson. You'll never be judged for not tithing at NRCC. You'll just never be judged for any, uh, any fear, any shortcoming. But you must recognize that I'm going to stand and do my best to persuade you that this is an essential act of obedience. This is a way of living with God. And that is just one. There will be more, many, many more. So that's it. Together, we're going to do our best to listen. Together, we're going to do our best to obey. One to two Wednesday a month through the holidays, as we go through and get through the holidays, I'm going to ask you to come meet here on your knees for 55 minutes with me, one hour. And we're going to seek, and we're going to listen, and we're going to ask God for loose solutions to our problems, and we're going to talk together, and we're going to share the things that we sense from God, and then we're going to respond in obedience. I want you to listen again to the letter that I sent you this morning. When it comes to accomplishing things for God, you will find that high aspirations, enthusiastic feelings, careful planning, and being able to express yourself well are not worth very much. The important thing is absolute surrender to God. The important thing is absolute surrender to God. So, Lord, I lay before you any hope of a future that we have. And I commend to you your people, holding them before your grace and mercy and goodness. And I ask that as we step forward in obedience, you would teach us the way of the servant. Teach us the way of the dying grain of wheat from which comes life. Teach us the way of complete and total surrender. Teach us the way of, that is so contrary to our consumer culture of living lives that are forfeit that we have already given our lives away to our God, that there is nothing that we have that is not already His. There is nowhere that we can go except that He would send us. So, Lord, lead us to that place of becoming the servants of the Most High God. I ask that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And before I hand out the stuff, what are you thinking about? <laughs> Boy, that was awfully heavy, Doug.
Yep. I'm so glad you brought that up because if we listen and obey, one of the things that Lord spoke through a prophetic word to our community through Jim was the image of juggling. And the juggling balls were, I've got five balls up here. And now Doug comes along and says, I've got to embrace community. All right, well, let me just grab another one. Now I've got six balls going. And the key is not to do that. The key is to take all the balls in our lives and put them all down and ask the Holy Spirit of God, what should I do? And that's going to be imperative. I can't tell you how many people who have heard me talking about coming and serving God, their hearts sing and they say, yes, I want to do that. And they come to do it and they can't keep their commitment because their lives are too full. And they get to a place of saying, I, I can't do that. And so the only way that we will do this is the life of discernment. Discerning from the Holy Spirit of God, can I do this thing? Lord, should I lay this down? What am I doing now that I can't do? What is available to, what resources do I have inside that I've been protecting that I didn't realize that I had? What things that should I not be doing that I am doing? And the only way we can do that is discernment. And we go before our God and we listen and we obey. I don't know how to lead you to build a church because I look at your lives and I think you can't do this thing I'm about to, we're about to do. There's no way. I can't do it. My wife can't do it. Aaliyah can't do it. We can't do this thing. The only way I know to lead you is to the place where you discern from God how in the world are we possibly going to do this. I appreciate you bringing that up. I caught on to that about two months ago. I thought, okay, God, you want me to do this? I can do this. No problem. And then I watch Aaliyah crying in her office. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe I can't do this, Lord. <laughs> While we're talking, I'm handing around this clipboard. If you would put your name on it, let me know you were here. Yep, I know what you're talking about. 
You're talking about the difference between knowing and knowing. I mean, I knew before something has changed, and I wouldn't trade. I can use the same words. It sounds exactly the same thing, but it is profoundly different. That may, I hope we listen to the Holy Spirit and hear those kinds of things. I know one of the more profound dealings in our married life was when the Lord told us to simplify and told us to, you know, I think Denise spent three years going through one room every month and just getting rid of everything that didn't need to belong there. I mean, something as practical as that. And I went through the calendar and I did the same. Get rid of everything that doesn't need to be there. And I just took a hard look and said, okay, Lord, if, if this is what you ask of us, what do we need to do? Now, I wouldn't do that just on general, well, I might just do that on general principle. <laughs> but as the Holy Spirit of God comes and stir these things in our hearts, it, you know, that kind of stuff is what God speaks to us. Trish? Wait, wait, wait. Enjoying Job? <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. Continue. <laughs> I really am enjoying stuff that people say they don't. <laughs> yes. And then, all of a sudden, 
way forward and made good. And then my reading moved, and I tell my son this by email, and he calls me up and says, Mom, the minute you're done with Luke, you have to go straight to Acts. Okay, I did. And I'm in the middle of Acts. And you hear all these wonderful things that God is having his, um, through Jesus is having his disciples and his other people, apostles and, and you know, the, the various people who are devout believers to do. And some of them have, you know, total other directions in their lives. And I think what all I've been reading has been like a preparation for what God is saying. Uh, that I feel like it's been all this studying and reading and and I spend a lot of time on the computer. I do have the luxury of a little more time than a lot of you. But I spend a lot of time reading and Fenlon and and various others. And it's all been about these things. And just today I was reading about quietness. And I just think that these things happen in our life if we're really, really open to hear. Keep going. What are you thinking, Hammock? I was thinking about all the time that we've spent simplifying, 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 and how when you've lived that way, and that's in your mindset, re-engaging and adding to, you know, what 